typically when we talk about worship, uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> well, usually what? It's, it's the music at the church, right? And, and I'll just say this, based upon my experiences, outside of the sermon, um, the music at a church is probably the thing that we are most critical of. Amen? Just say amen. It means you agree. Yes. Um, and whenever someone uh, approaches me about uh, music at the church, um, I'm always gracious and I listen. Why? Because I have opinions as well. And I'm aware of that. And, and, and I think also whenever we approach this topic of worship and worshiping together in a church context, we all bring a variety of background and, and, and experiences, don't we? Uh, some of us have different denominations, some of us even different religions, um, and, and, and we've experienced different expectations as to what right worship is, what wrong worship is, uh, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. All of these things uh, we bring into a setting like this as we talk about uh, worship. And, and so for me, as I was approaching this topic, I was even thinking of the different churches that, that I've been at and how uh, during the time of musical response in worship, how it looks so differently at all of them. And, and so it's not, uh, we're not approaching this like, oh, this is how you do it and the only way you do it. And Ecclesia has just figured it all out. That's not at all what this is about. What this is about is hopefully bringing light to why God calls us into this and the posture and the response that we're expected to have. And so let's first start out with this. What, what is worship? right? What is it? We hear it. We hear this term over and over again. People have, 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 have labeled different things as worshipful or not. What does worship mean? And um, I actually love what, what John Piper says about it. He describes it as this. The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. I just love that. I love that definition. I love how it unpacks just worship. And so when we approach worship, Worship is this reverence, it's this awe, it's this uh, adoration, and it's, and it's this obedience towards uh, God and God alone. And throughout our, our, our Bible, we see that there are hundreds of scriptures uh, that speak about uh, worship. But, but the word worship, it, it comes from the old English word meaning worship, meaning to give worth to. And so in its earliest context, when we think about giving worth to God, uh, we see in the Old Testament, worship to God, it involved an act of sacrifice. Um, and, and for them, it was the slaughter of an animal and the shedding of blood in order to bring atonement for sin. And, and it was this time of looking ahead uh, to the time when the Messiah would come. And, and become the ultimate sacrifice. And, 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 and he would give himself in this ultimate act of worship, giving his very own life out of obedience to God and out of this incredible love that he has for you and me. But then in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul reframes sacrifice as worship when he says this. And he says, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our, our, our form of worship, and when I say our form, our, our post-resurrection uh, form of worship, it's, it's to bring ourselves, our, our very own uh, lives as a living sacrifice to God, a, a sacrifice that is holy and pleasing uh, to him, it says. And so, and so that, when we talk about worship, that is, uh, that is the call is that we would give of ourselves completely to our Lord and Savior in sacrifice. Oswald Chambers says, worship is giving God the best that he has given you. And what greater has he given you than just life? And so it is our ultimate sacrifice, giving God back the very life that he gave to us. It's, it's the very purpose we were created. We were created to worship. We were created to glorify him uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, it says, but, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That you've been called into to proclaim the excellencies of, who, of, of, of him. Uh, Isaiah 43, 7, he, he, says, he says literally that... Uh, I created you for my glory. In other words, I exist. Everything in my life should ultimately be bringing Christ glory. It should glorify him. Guys, there's a reason uh, we did our core values uh, as a church. And, and, and the first one was glorify God. Above everything else, we pray that everything we say and do is glorifying to God. And, and, and in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he literally says, whatever you do, whatever, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do can be glorifying to God. And so that's what we reflect on. That's what we think about is um, how am I worshiping him, giving him that worth above everything else in my life in response to that first and greatest command, which is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So, so all of this is based upon that. It's my response to the greatest of loves that, that could ever be initiated. And, and, and it's so simple. It just says, love me. Love me back as I have loved you. And so we see worship being that thing that we offer to him and him alone. In Luke 4, 8, Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so that seat of reverence, of awe, of adoration, that is a seat that is only for him. And so how do, how do we worship? How do we worship? I mean, uh, we know why Revelation 4.11 says, because he alone is worthy of that. But how? How do we worship, right? Um, well, I'm glad you asked, because uh, Jesus responds to that. In, in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And before I read that, what you need to know is Jesus is, is at this well in Samaria. Uh, he, he's in, you know, and, and they didn't interact with Samaritans. So he's already breaking all these cultural barriers and he's interacting with this woman at the well, as we know her. And, and she's there at the well and Jesus initiates this conversation. And, and all of a sudden he starts turning the conversation into this direction of worship. 
And he's gonna address two things here. And this is what he says in John chapter four, uh, 23 and 24. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, what is Jesus speaking to here? What is he highlighting? Once again, it's important to know what's going on culturally, okay? So when it came to worship uh, during that time, uh, the people in Samaria had said, fine, you don't want anything to do with us? We are gonna build our own temple on Mount Gerizim and, and, we're, gonna, and we're gonna worship him there where we want to worship. Uh, the religious elite of the Jews, right, the Pharisees, they were known for what? They were known for how they appeared in worship and how they obeyed everything. And not only obeyed everything, they added laws and they, uh, they essentially uh, acted like they were God's gift to humanity. They were perfect when it came to responding to God in worship. And so what Jesus is doing is he's actually addressing both. And, and, and we see him actually speak even more so uh, to the religious uh, elite in a minute. But what he's addressing with the Samaritans is, is you're not worshiping in truth because how you're worshiping is not in alignment with Scripture. So your heart might be right, but the posture and, and what you're asked to do in worship is missing the truth base. So he's addressing that. He's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't just get to like, um, I'm gonna create my own way and, and do all of this. Like God has, 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 has said, this is how you do this. This is what I want you to do in response. And, and so, yeah, their heart may be right, but they're not applying it off of truth. And then we see him in Matthew 15 address these religious elite. In verse eight, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And this is where it gets real. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, now what, is he, what is he speaking to here? He's speaking to the hypocrisy in how these religious elite, these Jews, were, were worshiping, and it was all about appearance. It was all about being noticed. It was all about being seen. It was all about, like, uh, you know, they were the ones praying and, like, hoping everybody could hear how great their prayer sounded. Uh, you know, they wanted everyone to know if they were fasting. Oh, I'm just fasting for God. Yeah. You know, like, like they wanted to be noticed. And so, and so literally, I, I love what Jesus says. He says, that worship is in vain. What is vain? That worship means absolutely nothing. See, uh, what he's highlighting there is, is that worship is not coming from the truth of their heart, is it? They're, they're, they're reflecting something, they're acting something out that isn't an accurate representation. It's not in spirit and in truth. Your spirit is the core of who you are before uh, God. And, and so what we see um, uh, when it comes to worship is, is this. You can do as many deeds and good things as you want. You can go to as many church services as you uh, want. Uh, and, 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 and you can listen to uh, Christian music all the way home today. And then you can go home and, and then turn on a podcast. And then you can worship in the podcast and all that. You can do all of those things. But if it's all external and it's not 
overflowing from a heart of truth before God, it's vain. It's nothing. Nothing. So what do we see here is worship. The worship God asks us to, to give our lives to, to participate in this worship, it must be truthful. When I say truthful, it must be authentic. That's the worship he wants. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it's authentic, right? It, it, it means that if I'm here, man, and I'm struggling with God and we're in a song, I'm not just like, right? It's like, no, this is hitting. This is bringing some truth. Man, and it's responding in that truth, right? So it's truthful, it's authentic, but then it's also truth-based. That means it aligns with scripture. Okay, so, so it, it's got to come from the truth of my heart, and then my worship must align with Scripture, uh, when, when, when Scripture describes what worship is and what it isn't. And ultimately, it must glorify God, right? And so it has to be truthful, truth-based, and glorify God. You guys, when we think about songs for our church, that's, that's the criteria. I think that's what it is. Is we look at the song, we go, okay, let's do that. And each song we look at independently and we go, does it say that? Does it communicate that? Um, and, and that's how we base the selection for songs. And then is God calling uh, the church to sing that, right? Um, but you guys, what we see when, when true worship is happening in your, in your mind and, and, and in your heart, that worship then goes into public expression. And that's what uh, Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1, right? He says, this is your spiritual worship. You're giving your life. It's moving you into something. Um, in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 15 through 16, it says this, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says, essentially, this worship is being played out in two ways. It's being played out in the, from the mouth, right? From the mouth, uh, there's praise, there's repentance in worship services and in your time with the Lord. But then the other action uh, that we see is the demonstrations of, of love where we willingly sacrifice and are generous for the good of others. Okay, and, and, and if there's one thing that really stands out in those two verses, uh, it's what they begin and end with, and it's the term sacrifice, isn't it? You guys, uh, when it comes to the love of God, it's always sacrificial. When it comes to the worship of God, it's never a void of, 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 sacrifice, of sacrificialness. It, it, that's a, I just made up a new word. Um, it's great, write that down. So, and try and spell it, but... These are, these are sacrifices before the Lord. These are what are, are pleasing uh, to uh, him. And they play out with our mouths and they play out then in our actions and our responses in generosity, uh, in, in, in love, in service. And, and, and so uh, one of the things we need to understand and know is that worship is not a one-time act done in a certain location on a specific religious day. It's a way of life. It should never be confined to, okay, well, we're going to worship in three days at 1030. 
Like, it should never be confined to that, right? Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, all places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. Now, I was really challenged uh, with that this last week. We were driving uh, from Spokane as a family, and uh, I was really challenged knowing I was preaching on this. And, and you're driving, and you're like, okay, I'm supposed to worship you, God, as I'm driving, struggling, not only with what's going on out there, but also in my car, because we're all in here, and, and, and just processing what I was preaching on, and it's a lot easier to preach it than it is to live it, amen? Um, but you guys, this is to be an everyday thing. We worship God all during the day for who he is. We remember his nature, his characteristics. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-loving. He always uh, was. He always is. He always will be. He is sovereign. He, he loves us with a, a divine love. And so every day we get to, to have this reminder of who he is, and we get to take those thoughts and direct them back through our words and actions in worship. And so we should be waking up uh, thinking about the goodness of God for just allowing us to breathe, for allowing us to live another day and to honor him. It is so much more than just singing. It's what you were created to do with your whole life. And, and so that's what we need to be thinking about throughout the day at work. God, how do I worship you in this? God, how do I worship you in this interaction? How do I even worship? God, there's conflict coming. I see it coming. How do I worship you in and through that? And, and so it's, it's, it's an everyday thing. And so I invite you to make worship a non-negotiable priority in your life. And, and here's something maybe you don't do. Evaluate your expressions of worship. And I ask you to evaluate that so that you'll give the glory that God and God alone deserves. We should evaluate, man, how, how am I acknowledging him? How am I praising him? Is that even a part of my rhythm, part of my life? And, and when we think about just within the context of the postures of worship throughout scripture, it describes so many different postures. It describes bowing down, describes kneeling. Uh, Job, his posture of worship, it describes him tearing his robe, shaving his head, and falling prostrate on the ground before the Lord. We see prayer. Uh, we see the stillness and the quietness, worship. Uh, we see hands up. We see, we see dancing. We see instruments. Um, but however it's displayed in Scripture, when it's God honoring, it's done in spirit and truth, and it brings glory to God and God alone. And so on Sundays, we try our best to create an environment for worship to happen. And, and, and in fact, we sing, right? We sing before, and we're going to sing uh, in a little bit here. And, 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 and we're just doing what God's word says. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that's what we're going to do. And, and, and we, 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 we respond in worship through our singing. And I love how we sing collectively. You guys sound so good collectively. Individually. I don't know. That's up to the person next to you. I'm not judging. But I, I, I think one of the reasons he calls us together too is he knows collectively our voices sound a lot better. Um, and so we respond with singing. We respond even right now during the teaching we worship, we're, we're responsive. In communion, 
we're worshiping in communion, in, in our prayer, uh, through our, our financial giving, we are worshiping. And, and so, and so that, that carries then into this, this next rhythm where he calls us to, to give as an extension, as a reflection of our worship. Now, as I talk about this, there's two things I want to acknowledge. Um, this topic is, is really tough for a lot of people. In fact, they're, they're, they pray to God that uh, when they invite someone that the pastor's not talking about it um, and, and they run for the hills, right? Now, uh, and, and part of it is self-inflicted, okay? Because there's two reasons I see why when it, when it comes to any conversation on giving, why it's just like, ugh. And, and one is we're wealthy, right? Even you, they're like, no, you don't know anything. Like, no. I know comparatively to the world, you are in a very unique percentage. And so one, it confronts us because we are the ones the scripture speaks so much to, right? So we don't like that. Second is we've seen churches, pastors abuse, manipulate, and and this topic, um, preach this this prosperity gospel, um, or just steal, right? And, and guys, I've seen all of that. So, so I don't like go, what's wrong with you if you think that? No, like anybody that's read the headlines, uh, and if you've been to um, multiple churches in your life, more than likely you've seen something like that. And, and guys, that turns us off. It really does. And I would say that is an earned title. And so I think for us, what we have to first and foremost go is, is we don't just turn something off because of what we've seen it being abused or used or manipulated, right, to get an outcome. We go and we look, man, first and foremost, Scripture addresses this a ton. Jesus talks more about this than heaven and hell combined, okay? And so one of the, the reasons we have to address it is because it asks us to uh, make this a rhythm. And the other thing is, um, as, as it asks us to make a to make it a, a, a rhythm, we're coming back from, from, from what? The very first invitation, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and all our mind, right? And so, and so if we're asking that holistically of our life, we also must include this area of our life called our, our finances or our, our wealth. And, and guys, I get asked this so often from people. You start reading their Bible or they're new and they're like, I keep reading about this. What does God's word actually say? And so a bunch of you probably have a lot of questions around this topic. And so let's talk about what God's word says in the responsiveness of worship through uh, giving. Um, The apostle Paul, he was a mentor uh, to many people, but the apostle Paul was a mentor to a young uh, guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy was this young pastor who was pastoring the church at Ephesus. And, and during this time, uh, the church at Ephesus was experiencing incredible growth, and, and many people uh, were starting to embrace Jesus and his teachings. Churches were popping up uh, in many of the port cities around the Mediterranean, and, and the port cities, those were the epicenters for, for trade uh, and wealth. And, and Paul, who planted many of these churches, he knew that wealthier people faced unique challenges as they adopted Christianity and tried to follow Jesus. And so he addresses this topic 
to this young pastor, Timothy. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, so what is Paul saying here to uh, this church, to this young pastor to teach? He's saying, you need to teach against the arrogance that the pursuit of wealth could lead you to. It's gonna lead you into this arrogance, right? Because uh, historically, we've always based um, our opinions and views of success off of possessions. And well, so he says, it'll guard you against that. And so preach against that, what it can lead to. But then secondly, preach against the uncertainty that comes from money when you place your hope in it. Preach against that. If you don't, they're going to make that their primary source of hope. So warn them. And so you guys, what you need to know first and foremost is the Bible doesn't say that wealth or having a lot of money is a bad thing. It does not say that. In fact, when you look throughout scripture, I mean, some of the, I mean, some of the people that we highlight in scripture were extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy, right? Um, and so it doesn't say that, but what it does throughout God's word is it warns us about the dangers of money because money and wealth has a unique gravitational pull on us. So in other words, this is a rhythm that, that God is, is saying, I want this to be a part of your life because this is going to guard and protect you from going down a road that is going to pull you in a way that is foreign to you. It's unexpected. It's unique. And, and it's more dangerous uh, than some of these other things. In fact, in, in Matthew 6, 21, it tells us why, right? It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you see why he's, he's warning us? Do you see why? He's not saying money is bad, is he? He's not saying that. He's saying this has a gravitational pull on you and, 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 and it's gonna pull in, in ways that, that, that are totally different. In fact, it, it literally is going to hijack your heart. Where your treasure is, is your heart's going to follow it. And so you have to highlight this. You've got, you've got to speak to this because it will hijack like nothing else. It will hijack your life goals, your purpose, your desires. It will hijack the decisions you make. Uh, it, it will hijack how you raise your family, uh, the priorities that you have. It will hijack the relationships that you have. It will hijack the relationship with, with God you're supposed to have. And ultimately, money like nothing else will lie to you. What do I mean by that? 
How often have you either thought or said, well, if we had more, if I just have more money, then I can really love my spouse who I'm called to. If I just make more money, um, if, if we just produce more, then my kids, they're going to have a shot. Then my kids, they're going to be a success story. Then this is going to happen. If I just have some more uh, money, if I, if I have more money, and here's a, here's a Christian one, if I have more money, then I can just give more. And, and, and guys, those aren't like the desire to have a better marriage, the desire to have a better relationship with kids, the, the desire to be successful at, at work, the, the desire to love God, to give back. Like, those are all great things. And yet money, like nothing else, will lie to you. Why does it lie to you? It wants you to get on this train knowing, and, and, and that's what Satan's whole goal is. He wants, oh man, he, he wants to literally manipulate and twist money so, and wealth so much so that it actually we, we begins to justify itself in a spiritual or even maybe a godly way. And so we get on this train of wealth and what Paul is warning us against, what Jesus is warning us against is your heart's gonna jump on that train. And money, like nothing else, is going to pull you. And what its goal is, what Satan's goal with that wealth and that money is, to ultimately destroy your family, destroy your marriage, destroy your relationship with your kids, destroy your relationship with God. And why is it so dangerous, you guys? In our culture, in our wealthy culture, you get on that train, you're going to be celebrated. You're going to be celebrated. Everyone's going to highlight you. They're going to look at you. They're going to look at what you have, what you can afford, and they are going to applaud you, your coworkers. Uh, you're going to get acknowledged. You're going to, all these things, right? At what cost? At what cost? It says your heart will follow it. And guys, this isn't just a wealthy person deal. You can be poor and have that same mindset. And so, and so scripture, it doesn't say wealth is wrong. It doesn't say being successful is wrong or anything like it. It doesn't say having things is wrong. But it warns us about what it can do and, and it creates a framework to guard us against it. And guys, one of the things that I love about scripture as well is, is, is it gives us tangible examples to the damage that can happen. You guys, think about it this way. How often do we read the gospels and go, if I was just there, Man, if I was just there with Jesus, when he did that, when he healed that person, when he did that with that group, when he, when he said those words, if I was just there, guys, guess who was there with him? Judas. Judas was with Jesus. He's with Jesus, and yet, even as he's with Jesus, money has such a grip on his heart that he can listen to Jesus. He can watch Jesus do these things that you and I just go, oh. And yet money has such a hold of his heart that he would approach those religious leaders and ask what? What will you pay me to give you, Jesus? What will you pay me? And, and, and not only does money have such a hold of his heart and his soul that, that he sells Jesus away, betrays him, but all throughout Jesus' ministry, people were giving to Jesus' ministry. It was being funded, Right? And what was Judas doing? Stealing the whole time. Judas is stealing. 
Money had such a hold of his heart. He is with Jesus. He's watching these things happen, and he is stealing. There's a religious young ruler who's very wealthy, and he approaches Jesus, and Jesus tells a story as, as a cautionary tale, and, and, he's, and he's literally highlighting how he does everything, and Jesus knows what has a hold of his heart and says, okay, well, I want you to sell everything you have, and he walks away sad, and this was a young man so impressive that the disciples actually asked Jesus in response to that interaction, who in the world can be saved? Because on paper, he's it. And what Jesus is exposing is what's going on in our hearts. So he says this, like nothing else will lead you into this illusion of self-sufficiency, into arrogance, and, and, and human nature is going to just that your identities are going to be defined by your possessions. And that's why Jesus spoke so much about wealth and money. And so how do we guard ourselves against the side effects of that? Well, Paul explained it in 1 Timothy 6, 17, but then in the very next verse, in verse 18, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So, so, so there's a posture shift that I want you to start teaching and communicating as these wealthy individuals, because Christianity, when it was starting, it wasn't the wealthy receiving it. So this is kind of unprecedented times. And so he says, now, as you start teaching it, uh, you need to teach on what, on, on, on what they should be um, exuding their energy and their resources in. Uh, Jesus was uh, preaching. Um, and when, when he was preaching to his followers, this argument broke out in the crowd. And it was an argument about greed. And so Jesus pauses, he stops, and he, and he tells a story as only Jesus could. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16, he says this. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So, the one, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what Jesus is doing here is in a very practical way, he's exposing the flaw in the drive that people have, the desire, the motivation. And so if we simply just store for ourselves and are not rich towards God, everything we possess will be a total loss. You guys, you, you, you realize like you're not taking anything with you. Like, like when you die, it's not like, like, no. First Timothy 6, 7 is like really, really clear, right? I mean, it, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, right? So nothing is going, is, is going with us. And so um, when, when you combine Jesus's teaching with Paul's, we get this, this plan for avoiding this pitfall. And, and, and it's this, you are to pursue, we are to pursue a life of generosity, but it has to start with the right perspective. And the right perspective comes back to a heart issue and an ownership issue. And, and, and the ownership issue, and I'll just say this, when I first uh, started following Jesus and was trying to honor him, I, I did not have that, that was a mess. 
there was, there was a major ownership uh, issue. Uh, I would give, uh, but it was more like tipping, right? It was more like, okay, there's that percentage. That's good. Uh, that was a good sermon. There you go. 2%. There, uh, I like that worship song. Didn't like that one. Uh, we'll get five. Or there's 10, there's 15. And I would give, but there was a issue, not only with my heart, but there was an ownership issue. See, one of the, the realizations that I had to have that scripture teaches us is it's his, not yours. See, when, when I give back to him, I'm just returning what's already his. And, and, and since it's his, what you and I have is a gift from God. Like it's a gift. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, uh, he says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Money isn't bad, it's a gift. So why do we act like it's ours? You know, I, I, I think of, you know, like back in the day when you would rent a movie, you had to return it, right? Like there was never a confusion with Blockbuster on it's their movie, I need to bring it back. Like ever, I always returned it. Um, but have you ever been asked to hold on to something for someone else or store something? And maybe it's something you liked and maybe it's something they said you can use and, and they don't come back for it. They don't ask about it. And maybe it's been months, maybe it's been a year. And then all of a sudden they ask for it back. How do you respond? Are you kidding? Seriously? Why do we respond that way? Because in our minds, we took ownership over something that was theirs. Right? They never gave it to us, but our minds took ownership. And we do the same thing with the material and financial blessings from God. See, a steward at, at its very core is someone who's entrusted with the management of the owner's assets. And, and from the beginning in the garden to the end, scripture emphasizes, uh, and it's crystal clear that God owns everything. In, in, in Psalm 50 verses 10 through 12, it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Everything is his. That's the narrative all throughout scripture. It all belongs to him. You guys, God doesn't, we're like, oh, God needs my money. No, God doesn't need your money. It's already his. If he wants it, he'll just take it. You're like, oh, he did that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you guys, we don't find any verses that says he surrendered ownership to us. So what should we be doing? We should regularly be asking him, what do you want me to do with your money, with your resources? And he tells us what to do. In Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Invest in eternity, invest in what lasts. And you guys, this is a mindset that is the opposite of what many of us have today, isn't it? I think over and over again, the temptation is to look at what we have and go, this is mine. I worked for this. 
I'm entitled to do whatever I want with it. But here's a question we have to answer. Who gave you the ability to do what you do? To earn what you've earned? Who gave you the opportunity to work hard? The opportunity at your job, at your career? Who gave you the parents you have that gave you all that money? Yeah, before you were born, you didn't say, hey, God, them. Okay, not them, them, okay? You didn't do that. That's a different religion, okay? Like, you didn't do that, all right? So, so there is absolutely none of us that can sit here and claim ownership. And you guys, honestly, it is a sad thing uh, that, that we do not uh, look to the Lord and just appreciate even the ability to do what we do. I mean, we, we take this for granted and it, it is sad. I was just talking to a, a firefighter after the last gathering and they were just sharing with me how depressing this last week was just meeting with people who are in states and, and, uh, of mind and, and things that have happened or, or, or been done or, or based upon their upbringing and all these things that they had no control over. Just how hard it was. And who in the world are we to go, well, this is mine. He gave us the ability. He gave everything that belongs to us. And so if, if he gave it to us uh, to, to be used for him, that means it belongs to, to him. And, and, and so what should be the thing that defines how I approach the money that he's blessed me with? It's this. How can I honor you, God, with it? God, what do you want me to do with it? Right? And, and so what do we see as a spiritual rhythm? We see this throughout scripture. And many of you have heard these phrases. So I just want to unpack them shortly here. Uh, before we close our time together. Uh, we, we hear all about tithing, uh, don't we? Uh, we've heard it said. And, and, and you guys, tithing, um, it, first of all, tithing is, is, is returning, it's not giving, when you, when you hear it. But what, the principle of tithing, it was ingrained in the beliefs and the lifestyles of early Christians, most of whom grew up in Jewish homes, and, 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 and so you, you see that there. And, and one of the things you will see highlighted in the Old Testament, when it talks about money, is you'll see this whole uh, first fruits. You'll see that used. And maybe some of us have, have used that. Um, but this referred to the first products of the seasonal harvest. And so symbolically, the giving of the first fruits in the Old Testament, it acknowledged God's ownership of the land and of all the crops that would follow. And so before the people consumed any of the harvest, they were to give God the, the first part of the harvest and the best part of the harvest. If this wasn't done, there would be no blessing on the remainder of the crop. And so it's giving to him first and the best of the first. This was a principle uh, ingrained in the Old Testament, which is a great principle, isn't it? Especially in light of God giving us his first and his best in Jesus. But then we see the first teaching about tithing as a law. It occurs in Leviticus 27.30. The meaning of the word tithe, when you hear it, is, is literally, it's a tenth. Uh, the, the tithe, what we see in the Old Testament, we see the tithe belongs to the Lord, and the tithe applied to everything. It was to be holy, set apart, and given to God. Uh, in the Bible's first reference to tithing, uh, which is really interesting because it occurs over 400 years before Tithing is a Mosaic law. And it's when Abram came back and gave uh, the priest Melchizedek the 10% of the spoils of a battle. And so we see that happening before, 400 years 
before it was even law, okay? So it wasn't just this law thing, it was being practiced. Uh, God, throughout the Old Testament, he warned the Israelites that to present anything less than the full 10% in Malachi 3, 8, 9, it actually says, that's to rob me, is what he uses. So the Lord had expectations uh, of giving, and even beyond the tithe, there were expectations uh, from free will or voluntary uh, offerings, which is where God would lay something on the heart of the people and prompt them to give towards it. And so in his law, God taught his people to set aside a tenth of their crops as a teaching tool. Remember, this is also a protection uh, for their relationship with God to guard them against the seductive nature of money. By giving away 10%, they made a statement about the 90% that it belonged to the creator. So in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites, they actually would give three different tithes, but one was given every three years. So it amounted to about 23% of their income. The New Testament, we see uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and throughout the New Testament, what you see is the church explodes. And as we see teaching on giving, rather than falling short of, of tithing, we see the early Christians going far beyond tithing. It's remarkable, the giving that happens in the New Testament. And Jesus affirmed uh, the tithing in Matthew 23. But the question we have to ask, because I get asked, well, it's not like specific, like, you know, we're not under the law anymore. But we do have to answer this question. If it was right under the law, is it now wrong under grace? See, Jesus, as the fulfillment of the law, took everything farther, didn't he? Grace always went further than the law did. And so what we see throughout the New Testament, when it talks about giving, uh, it was to be, one, it was to be sacrificial, right? David actually said in the Old Testament, I will not give God anything that costs me nothing. And we also see it was proportional, right? Like, like Jesus highlighted that. And in Mark chapter 12, he's actually hanging out with his disciples and they're there by the giving box where they had the collections. And this, this little, this widow, this poor widow comes up and she gives two coins and Jesus highlights what this widow gave. And he says, she gave more than all of these other wealthy people. And they're like, no, she didn't. And Jesus is like, she gave from what she didn't have. So he's highlighting the, the, the gift from the heart. He's not highlighting the amount. He's highlighting the proportion. He's highlighting the worship component that comes from the depth of her heart. And you guys, that is what I was missing when it came to giving. So in the New Testament, it wasn't a matter of what you had. It was proportional. It was consistent. It was generous. And it was always dictated by God. And though, although we don't see the word tithing instructed, you see offerings happening. Paul raising support and instructing Jesus' followers in churches to give each week in 1 Corinthians 16. And then we see in 1 Timothy 5, it talks about paying uh, your pastors. And then we see in the life of Christ, Jesus had donors for his ministry. People were always giving towards Jesus's ministry. And then what I love about this, you guys, is there's a blessing attached to giving. There's a blessing attached to it. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, it says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Are you guys hearing that? Are you hearing that? 
Like, that's insane, this promise. In, in fact, in Malachi uh, 3.10, uh, the Lord says, test me in this. Test me if I will not literally overflow uh, the, the windows of, of heaven in blessing uh, you. And so by giving, you guys, you're the one who's blessed. You're the one who's blessed. And so, uh, I, you know, I always, I always tell people, I've always, I've been way more blessed as I've made this a priority in my uh, life. And so if, you, if you've never given and, and you go like, man, God, I, I feel like you're prompting me uh, to give, to be faithful in, uh, in this rhythm. Uh, for, for people, I say, man, if you can't start with 10, start with 10% there. We see it historically. We see it before the law. We see Jesus affirm that, start there. But I would say this, more, than, more important than anything, is just start, just start and ask God. Start by asking God, God, how do I honor you? Not with a percentage. How do I honor you with everything I have? Because God, this, maybe like nothing else, is a window into what's going on in my heart. And God, I want it to be worship. And that's why this is such an important topic. This is not about ecclesia. Guys, if you went to any other church, I would tell you the same thing. This is about you and God and what Jesus continued to point people to was to view their wealth through the lens of eternity. And when we do that, we lose not only our grip on wealth, but wealth's grip on us. Amen? It's, it's powerful. And so in closing, we've got to ask, what is God asking me to do? When it comes to worship, what is he asking me to do in response uh, what is the perspective on generosity, on a lifestyle that gives him worth? What is he leading me into? How do I respond to that? And so we're going to right now respond. 